and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast uh, with myself, Peter White, and our analysts, Harry Morgan and Andrew Swantonar, and our product manager, Simon Thompson. We're going to go over the issue we put out on Thursday, the 15th of October, and ask a few questions and talk a little bit about what's behind the scenes. So, the, I mean, the IEA piece, I thought was, was really nicely written. I, I mean, it's... Um, but. I wonder how long we can carry on just knocking the IEA. Um, everyone else knocks them as well. And then all the publications still quote them. It's yeah, just... it's really interesting seeing how everyone seems to just back exactly what they seem to, they rattle off exactly what they've said and they release everything like it's gospel. But then when you actually ask anyone what they think of the IEA, they're very um, transparent and they don't agree with um, the way it goes about things. Yeah, the, the solar stuff is just case in point and seeing that like, they have continuously underestimated renewals and they don't actually care about the energy transition. They just care about what's straight in front of them. As I say, if you if you knew their name was um, Oil Apology Society, you, you would definitely understand where they were coming from. But because they're called the International Energy Agency, it looks like they're somehow an amalgam of all the national energy agencies around the world who are all a kind of super agency whereas the, the, I mean, it's very confusing when you first come to this market because you, you find all the utilities around the world know absolutely what they're doing and the bulk of them not all of them but the bulk of them are, are happy to shift their capex spend into renewables in plenty of time to hit a 2050 um, zero carbon target. Most of them are. Most of the individuals inside the organisations are. There's the odd one, like Duke, uh, you know, that's that's just recalcitrant. But um, but really, the electricity industry um, is on top of this. But when they talk about the energy industry, it that's bulk. That's mostly oil and gas. Yeah, I think that. I mean, that's what's been the the biggest thing about the news this week is that. It's now apparent that the IEA are actually more bullish on oil than the oil majors like the BP, Shell, Total, just because of this fact that they're not seeing that we've already passed peak oil. I mean, they're expecting oil demand to rise through to 2040, which completely misses the point that we're going to see um, fossil fuel cars banned in certainly in European economies, uh, followed by America and likely to be China within the next 10 years. Um, it does have to be sort of a snowball effect of these policies coming into play. I mean, the IA will go by the fact that this isn't a forecast based on how policies will develop. But the fact that they're actually publishing it like it is a forecast means that investors just aren't going to be as confident as they should be. And if anything, the IA actually slowing down the rate of the energy transition. I don't believe they are, though. I mean, I don't believe anybody for one moment takes them seriously. I think I think that um, journalists, you know, who need some to quote a number will often take them seriously because their reports are all free. But I don't really believe that anyone making policy takes them seriously. I don't believe investors are flying out of oil. ExxonMobil hasn't even got a dead cat bounce. It's it's just going to continue to go down until the company's bankrupt. The um, the calls for new executives, you know, will will go unheeded for a couple more years, and then it'll be too late. One of the problems that they set is they put doubt in people's minds. That's what you were saying about investors. They do put doubt in people's minds. They put doubt in our minds. Because now I'm looking at the solar uh, numbers going forwards, 
Uh, and, and when we've got a solar forecast, it's not one we've put out as a separate report. It's kind of built built into our, our uh, other numbers. But the, the truth is, the tail end of our solar forecast is nowhere near high enough. And it's it's because we don't want to appear insane. Uh, I mean, then if we do a report, which we're planning to do on looking back from 2050 and how we arrived at this point, we'll have to have more solar than anyone is forecasting. And it's going to go up. The, the interesting thing is the, the speed of which uh, of the acceleration of renewables always, always comes with, as you say, comfort in investors are more comfortable investing in it and increasingly it's easier for them to invest in it and it's a no-brainer and they can find ways of putting their money on the roulette number that says solar um and um and i think that it just gets easier every day it becomes more bankable it becomes more obvious uh, uh, more bonds are kind of say don't worry we'll invest it for you in solar so i, I think um, and we will see that accelerate enormously, but we can't believe the size of the numbers because they are just enormous. And what what no economist can can uh, believe or accept is how big the solar companies are going to become, uh, the people who make them. I mean, the, the Provskite report we're planning, there's going to be a definite um, uh, acceleration of the effectiveness of solar in in the next five years. Um, based purely on Provskite alone. Hmm. Yeah, look, Oxford uh, Solar is looking at, what is it, 27% efficiency with uh, only a small increase in, in cost from its tandems, and that's to, to begin with. That's to begin with. It's looking at 1% improvement per annum thereafter. Hmm. You get to 2030 and have um, solar panels that um, yield 39% of the energy that arrives at them. Uh, although that, that is theoretically above the maximum, it, it's because you're going to have two two layers um, yielding energy, and at, at something like 39%, and they don't cost any more than they cost now. It's done. I mean, it, it, people are flooding to that that market once it's understood. Um, so in the 2035, 40, 45 timeframe, we are going to see a colossal amount of solar installed. I mean, when you look at China, I mean, Andres wrote a a piece about um, how Mongolia is accelerating. Hmm. Um, their scale has just gone through the roof. It's obviously a huge resource for the Chinese, but they, this is the problem that um, capitalism faces. You know, here's a directed economy going faster in a marketplace than capitalism. So that's a simple failure of policy. If, if policy is set up to make it easy for people to go out and make money, and that's got to be the primary aim of government policy, um, then people would be flying into it. Uh, you know, kids would be leaving school and starting a solar um, farm. I mean, they, they, everyone loves it. It's, it it makes, makes you feel good about what you're doing for the planet. It makes money. It's... Um, uh, the previous generation don't understand it, and it, it's easy to understand. Uh, uh, you know, that, that's what we want. We want a kind of batch of solar or all wind entrepreneurs who are just going at this hammer and tongs. At the moment, China's just making us look silly. That stuff in Mongolia, 
Um, 2.8 gigawatts, and it's called a pilot. <laughs> yeah, what, about, what, what is it about uh, Mongolia, Andres, that makes it so attractive? Well, I put in a, a little map which shows the wind speed, and it just has the best wind speed on land in China. And it's, it's, um, solar power is pretty good, too, in terms of just sunlight. Although it's not a full desert, so you can't do CSP there, I think. You can probably do it once it's a bit more improved, the technology. Uh, but also it's just closer to Beijing and all the cities to the south compared to the other places with high solar in the west, in the desert. And they have coal mining. They have coal mining. So as that um, goes out, you've got some uh, free land for solar development. Yeah, no, I suppose, as Peter said, the fact that there's very low density of population means that the land cost there is going to be very cheap and the cost of actually getting these projects underway and actually getting them through permitting processes will be really quick. Yeah, I would think so. And uh, and they're all built in, uh, these ones are built right in the south of the province. So they're, they're building these huge transmission lines, which uh, don't actually have that much, that far to go into the heartland. I guess with, with comparing wind to solar, though, um, like whenever there's a disruption or an unclear policy or uh, difficulty financing, like with wind, really the smallest unit you can have is like a three megawatt turbine, I, I would think. And that's like three million dollars. Um, Whereas with solar, you have entire markets, which are just these small domestic installs and stuff like that, especially when you have perovskite, uh, which will be like on tiny little things like windows. And, and then staying in China, there's a, an article this week about uh, a new company, well, that new to us anyway, in the hydrogen sector, Guofu. So, to, Harry, do, you, you wrote about Guofu this week? Yeah, so I suppose it also ties in quite well with Andres' um, article on solar exports. Essentially, Guofu is a, a hydrogen refueling station company. Uh, they also make things like um, tanks for liquefied hydrogen. Uh, and they've got quite a presence in, in the Chinese market. I think they're around 50% of market share. Uh, and naturally, with that, they're starting to look to spread their wings, basically, and where better than Europe, where we're starting to see all of this excitement around the uh, potential hydrogen economy. It's really interesting seeing how, how, seeing how this will play out. Um, on a technical level, they're probably behind um, the players that are currently operating in Europe, but on, on terms of the low cost supply chain, like we saw within the solar sector, uh, they are going to come in at a lower price. Um, so this whole debate about who's going to dominate the technical side will, will really depend on the success of people like Guofu in um, in their ambitions to enter the European market. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is unlikely um, you, if you feel that the nature of the European operators in and around hydrogen, they're all big companies. You know, we aren't seeing any startups. We are seeing some startups in terms of equipment provision, like Inepta, but you're not seeing that the, the, their customers are all very big companies and they're all very oh, yeah. established energy companies. Um, so you can't see China catching up with that head start if it's in the hands of those big companies who've got big capex budgets um but you, you're absolutely right if they're allowed to um do things just just do it on price and and bring stuff bring equipment that's manufactured in china um it is possible but don't you think the carbon um border tariffs when they emerge will negate something like that it's interesting because it's not quite clear yet how the carbon border ta uh, tariffs will work for components that are going to aim to facilitate the energy transition. So within sort of green hydrogen, um, I think when you've got companies that are massive like uh, Air Liquide, for example, um, competing and with quite a large sort of sway over how 
countries like France operate, uh, it will be hard for governments to get away with putting legislation out there that will facilitate people like Quo Food to come in and undercut the market. Um, also, th there's no sort of economic incentive for them to let to do, uh, for them to do that. And um, we saw um, when sort of even smaller companies in the say the German solar sector in sort of the the mid noughties when they were undercut by sort of the Chinese solar manufacturers, the number of jobs in China in the Chinese solar sector just plummeted uh, and has stayed sort of rock bottom since then. So there's no real incentive for Europe to facilitate this entry, especially when Europe is currently at the leading edge of the market. I think if Europe had been slower than China to uptake it, we were saying like, actually, yeah, we really need this technology in a developed state now, then that would be something we'd see. But I think currently, Europe will be happy just to sort of fund the uh, the R&D efforts of companies like Siemens um, and ThyssenKrupp, really, just um, through the sort of early stages. So uh, Cummins Engines this week got some that contract with BusTech, um, which is described as Australia's largest supply of transit buses. They do about 500 buses a year. Uh, they make and deliver into the to the service market. Over there. Um, the fact that Cummins Engines is advertising that is really quite ironic. Cummins Engines was invented, you know, it came into existence after the diesel engine by a couple of engineers who said, those diesel engines aren't very efficient. We could make a better one. And Today, Cummins engines, diesel engines all over the world, whether they're pushing trucks, tractors, trains, are pretty much exported throughout the whole globe. Um, and you know, we find them moving into um, fuel cells, but really rapidly. You know, they, they started all their research into electric um, engines, electric um drive trains and and, uh, and batteries um, 10 years ago and they, they got nowhere they claim that they're the most experienced company in the world at it but really they've, they've made no headlines uh, and every time they've announced something it hasn't come to pass but suddenly they are accelerating and in 2019 they uh, uh, they actually got their hands on hydrogenics or a part of hydrogenics this canadian company they bought last year and it's on the back of that they're, they're now able to put electrolyzers um, together and to build fuel cell systems and build fueling stations suddenly these big organizations are realizing oh hydrogen yeah we spent 10 years looking at batteries for trucks and going it'll never happen it'll never happen going slowly and suddenly their their future depends on going really fast now and this is their first contract um, that they've managed to land outside of America um, it, it just it's really odd that you know that is a company formed by two engineers who had an entrepreneurial vision that, that you know diesel engines could be better than this and they haven't had another entrepreneurial vision since and I just think it's odd that we should be having two engineers now in a back room who are making the same kind of business that will become the Cummins engine of the future, not seeing this kind of slow, dull-witted organisations that, that these hundred-year-old companies become, having to finally you know, make something happen just because they've got access to money. Yeah, I mean, Hydrogenics are an unbelievable company. I think they're very well placed to completely take over sort of the bus the truck market in terms of fuel cells as it moves forward. 
Um, I mean, you've got companies like Ballard who are doing very similar things. Um, another company, actually, in terms of buses that I wanted to talk about this week um, is Arrival. Um, mm. yeah, which I yeah. think is a really, really exciting company um, out of the UK, actually, which is uh, a bit astonishing for a bit of a dying automotive industry, really. So their whole route to market is based around a sort of micro factory approach, um, very much in opposition to sort of the terra factory we're seeing from uh, from Tesla. But what they're hoping to do is to sell fleets of buses and fleets of vans, basically, to urban customers. So um, basically, they want to set up these tiny factories on the edge of cities so that they can create these fleets and then service them constantly and have these vehicles up and running in a really quick time. Um, and actually cut the sort of lifetime cost by around 40-50% by saving all of this sort of toing and froing of vehicles from, from place to place. Well, it's a um, big I, Tesla thing. The, the Tesla says we need a factory in every market so that we don't have to spend, we don't have to drive a thousand miles to deliver a truck or deliver a car. So they, they kind of buy into it them as well. But I mean, they, obviously they don't have micro factories. They, but, 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 you know, I think, I think that's definitely... Uh, a factor in this this market that you need to be uh, you, you need to build them and deliver them from a place that's quite nearby and support them from even nearer yeah i, I think while we've been quite um i'd say quite keen on hydrogen trucks and hydrogen buses um when you look at sort of the requirements for inner cities um, i mean when you think of these sort of generic buses you think of city centers mm-hmm. so the fact is that these vehicles don't often exceed sort of the range requirements that you you can't get from a battery. So um, I think I read this week that in New York, the average sort of delivery van, for instance, only travels 15 to 20 miles a day, um, which is which you can easily do off the single charge from an electric electric battery. So well, even if it takes um, six hours and you're in traffic the whole time. Yeah, just because of the way that batteries are so, uh, so much more efficient than uh, the sort of petrol diesel engines. Well, it's perfect for New York. Um, I think that's all we've got time for this week. Um, We'll follow these stories as we go, and we'll be back with you again next week. Thank you.